You found a podcast where you'll hear the truth, and we will praise Jesus' name. We stand for the Bible and won't back down from it, although it don't bring much fame. Some folks will like it, some will try to deny it, but God's Word will always stand true. Hello, friends and faithful listeners. It's time for the Pod King Bible Study. I'm your co-host, Donald King. I'm joined by the host of this study, Brother Donnie King. On this podcast, we study the Bible from its original languages so we can understand the Word of God more clearly. We look at current events and news in light of Scripture, and we also examine some of the things going on within our culture from a biblical perspective. This is Monday, June the 19th, episode number 121, The Light Created It, John chapter 1, 2 through 5. In our last study, we did our eighth Q&A. As always, we have received some great questions, even if some of them were a little challenging. We fielded questions about the abomination of desolation, tattoos, loving our neighbor as ourselves, and cremation, just to name a few, for we answered a few more. We appreciate all the questions that our listeners send in, so please keep them coming. We pray that these episodes are a blessing to you and that they truly answer some of the things that have you perplexed. We believe this show will be a delight to you. In today's episode, we looked at some very powerful verses. We talked about how all things were made by the Word, and without Him nothing was made. We also saw that the Word is life, and then we saw that the life is the light of men as well. Even today, we still see how the light shines into the darkness, but somehow the darkness doesn't seem to comprehend it. Once again, we dig into some of the word meanings, bring in many cross-references, and we even get a little scientific a couple of times. We feel confident that this is a study all will enjoy. And now for the teaching of God's Word, and for the lesson for today, we'll turn it to the host of our podcast, Brother Donnie King. We want to say thank you to all of those who have joined in to listen with us today. Once again, we're in the book of John, just getting started good. Last week, we began the study of the Gospel of John, and we looked at one of my personal favorite scriptures in all of the Bible, John 1 and 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Yeah, well, I believe that verse should be among everyone's top five. Yeah, as a matter of fact, the first three verses combined in that chapter make up one of my favorite portions, along with Hebrews 1 and 1 through 3, which is also hard to beat. Let me share that with you. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. It doesn't get much better than that. I couldn't help but notice that we only made it through one verse last week, and you're planning on going over only three or four verses this week, right? That's right. Why do you ask? I guess you wasn't kidding when you said this study would take a while. Yeah, and we're only on the second episode, and you're already starting to complain about the length of this study. You've got to be kidding me. No, I'm not complaining, nor am I kidding. I guess I'm just practicing for later on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I thought for sure we were done with all the griping when we left Revelation behind. The book of John has 879 verses in these 21 chapters, so it will take a little time. Yeah, that's true. If it takes two weeks to do five verses, 
That is 10 verses a month. So it would take 88 months to do 879 verses. You're talking about being here for over seven years. No, 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 no. No, we're just anchoring down on this chapter, and we're going to start gaining some momentum when we get towards the end of the chapter and on throughout the book. Okay, well, you had me scared there for a little bit. Well, I have to say that I'm quite impressed with your math skills, though. (laughs) Well, if you would get started, I'd be closer to being impressed with your Bible teaching. Oh, my goodness. Okay, after that slap, I reckon I will get started. Hey, don't rush into anything. (laughs) Yeah, get real. (laughs) John 1 and 2. Let me read that for you, and then we'll make a few comments on that, and then we'll move into verse 3. The same was in the beginning with God. This verse seems to be just a repeating of what's already been said, but I believe there's a definite reason behind it. First off, I believe that these things are stated twice to make the point more emphatic. The emphasis is that this word, which was in the beginning, and he was in the beginning with God, whatever God consists of, the word must consist of the same thing as well. How could someone else exist from before creation that is not as much God as God himself is? This is John's way of restating his main point. He tells his audience once again that the word must also be God, for he was there with God. Whoever this word is must be as much deity as God himself is. Therefore, we must conclude the word is God too. That's right. The first two verses of John's gospel has pointed out that Jesus is God, or at least he's equal with God twice now. If Jesus is God, then he would certainly be equal with God, which is a claim that the religious leaders certainly understood. Well, if Jesus is not God, John is one of the biggest heretics of his time. If Jesus is not equal to God, then John's a liar, he's a deceiver, and he deserved being exiled on the Isle of Patmos. But before we condemn John, let's continue looking at his argument and examining the evidence he lays out for us. Let's go to verse 3. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John makes an astounding claim at the beginning of this verse. We know that he's had one subject, and it's his main subject, which is the Word. His other main subject that he's dealt with thus far has been God. We need to know which one of these is meant to be understood here. Is it God who made all things, or is it the Word who made all things? Well, the quick and easy answer is, yeah. The Word is God, and therefore he made all things. So from what is John basing his claims on right here? Is he making an empty or baseless claim? Is he speaking from experience? Is John speaking from personal knowledge? Or is John speaking from his own personal biased belief system? I believe you could say all those choices hold a little bit of his reasoning. I believe so, too. I think you could say that and not be totally wrong, but I also believe that he was using some of the Old Testament scriptures to make his point here. One of those scriptures I feel that he's referencing is back in Psalm 33 and 6. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made. John's taking that statement right there. He's using that verse and applying the word of the Lord as being that which is recorded in Genesis, which takes us all the way through Psalms and all the way up to John's time and his style of writing here in the first chapter of this book he wrote. Yeah, because John is speaking of what happened in the beginning, which was a creation. Yes, and by doing that, he's referencing the creator and he's pointing out how the creator did what he did. Most people would remember that creation was done by God's word. 
Yes, it was. If you go back to the book of Genesis chapter 1, if you'll settle in around verse 3, you'll start seeing it and you'll read that phrase, and the Lord said, and God said. You see that in verse 3, verse 6, and you just keep right on going. Just every couple of verses, you're going to see, and the Lord said, and God said. It's by the word of the Lord that everything was made. John doubles down and reinforces his argument here in verse 10 in John chapter 1 when he says that the world was made by the word. Paul and the author of Hebrews agree for the same designation of creator for Christ. They both call him the creator, thus making him the word that John's been describing here in John chapter 1. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 6, Paul says that all things are by or through Jesus. Now listen to this. But to us there is but one God, the Father of whom are all things and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ by whom are all things and we by him. What Paul is doing right here is he is talking about Jesus as the creator. He's not just talking about Jesus as a good man. He's not talking about Jesus as a healer. He's not talking about Jesus as a redeemer in this verse. He's calling Jesus the creator from Genesis. In Ephesians 3 and 9, Paul says that God created all things by Jesus. Now listen to this. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hidden God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. If you think about it, when you call Jesus the word and God's word created, just like John said, this statement doesn't really change the way that Paul worded it, nor does what Paul say change what John said. It actually makes it all come together and be clearer in our minds. It could be said this way. God created by his word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. That's a good way of putting it. In Colossians 1 and 16 and 17, Paul gives his most staunch argument for Christ as creator and God. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. He says that it's by Christ that all things were created, and all things that were created were created by him. All things that were created were created for him. It's by him everything and all things consist or exist. This matches what John said in Revelation 4 and 11. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. I like the way John throws in the fact that Jesus was here before creation in that verse, which means he existed before the beginning. That is true. This again proves his divinity, his deity, and his godhood. In Hebrews 1 and 2, the writer states that it was by and through Christ that the world was made. In Hebrews 11 and 3, the writer says that the worlds were framed or made by the word of God, which we know is Jesus Christ. John is simply stating what all of the apostles believed about Jesus. He is the word of God. John says that all things and everything was made by him. Not only this, but nothing was made that was not made by him. That's right. It could be even said this way. The word made all things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that'd been simpler. There's not anything that has been made that wasn't made by the word. Another way this verse could be stated is as follows. Everything came into being by the word, and apart from the word, nothing came into being. This places all action, all responsibility, and all performance on the word. It also takes away the possibility that anyone or anything else might have done or created. 
Yes, it does. It shows the preeminence of Christ so strongly in this passage. It also forces the Jews to equate Christ, the Word, with the Creator God back in the Torah. Oh, wow. I never thought of it in that sense, but I figured you're exactly right. Well, this transliteration straight from the Greek also aligns very well with another statement that Jesus makes, which just so happens to be recorded by John. In John 1 and 3, we see that apart from him, nothing was made, nothing was created, nothing was done. In John 15 and 5, Jesus tells us that apart from him, we can do nothing. Now, I know that may be slightly different than you're used to seeing it in your Bible because both settings use the phrase without in English, without him was nothing made that was made. Without him, we can do nothing. But in the Greek, it literally means apart from. Apart from Christ, we can't do anything. Apart from Christ, nothing was made that was made. Without Jesus, nothing was created. Without Jesus, we can do nothing. That's right. The statement's really the same, but it just gives us a little more clarity to how to understand it. I want to go into verse four right now, and this is one of those verses that you could probably spend a week in just diving in, looking at what all's here. It's a very short verse. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. I believe that John's gospel was written with great simplicity. Are you saying that you believe John was simple? No, by this, I mean that it's written without humongous words or abstract meanings. Despite its simplicity, it's still very profound, it's eloquent, and it's amazingly powerful. Take this verse that we're looking at right here, verse 4, as a classic case in point. There's only 12 words in this whole verse. And get this, only one word has more than four letters in it, and it only has five. Only two words has four letters in it or more. That means that nine of the 12 words within this verse are three-letter words or less. (laughs) You know, that's simply amazing because that's something else I've missed. Yeah, John's not elementary in his knowledge nor in his understanding, but he made his gospel readable, understandable, and easy for anyone to be able to grasp the message that he's put in here that God gave him. John begins this verse by giving another description of the word, and this time he says that the word is life. Now, please notice that he did not simply say the word was alive, but he said that life was and is in the word. Life comes from the word. John is ultimately telling us that the word is the source of life. John restates this several times within his gospel. You'll see in John 5 and 26, he spoke about it, and he said, For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. This means that the Son has the same kind of life within him that God the Father has. In John 11, Jesus told Martha that he is the resurrection and the life. And then in that same chapter, if you go down, I think it's around verse 25, he told her that even though someone be dead, If they believe in him, they will have life. Life comes from Christ, so those who believe on him will be given life. We're not talking about just any kind of life. We're we're talking about eternal life. That's right. It's life more abundant. In little John, 1 John 1 and 1, Jesus isn't just referred to as the word, nor is he just referred to as the life. The Bible says that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. Here we see both terms coming together and he's called the word of life. True life comes only from the word and he has life within him. 
We go further in the book of little John and we see first John five and 11 tells us, and this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life. And this life is in his son. God has given eternal life to us and our eternal life comes from God's son. When God gave us his son, he gave us eternal life because eternal life is in his son. In 1 John 1 and 2, we're told that the life has been manifested, we have seen it, and we bear witness to the life. He then explains that eternal life was with the Father, but now has been manifested unto us. The implication is that eternal life has been manifested in Jesus Christ, the Word. In John 14 and 6, Jesus made the claim of being the way, which means he's the only way to God, and therefore he's the only way to heaven. He also claimed to be the truth, which means that every other way is a lie and will not get you to the Father. He certainly did, but then he made a claim that's extraordinary. He said that he is the life. He is saying that he not only has life and that he not only gives life, but that he is life itself. He is the one that's the source of life, for all life comes through him. Yes, Jesus said, I am come that they may have life. Christ, as the word of God, is that living bread which came down from heaven that a man may eat of and not die. Man shall not live by bread alone, remember that, Mm -hmm. but by every word of God. Not only does life come from him, but the life is the light of men. John speaks of this topic often in his gospel, but here's one of the most familiar from John 8 and 12. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. There's a lot to comprehend in this verse because Jesus is claiming to be the light of the world. Well, doesn't this mean that he claimed to be the source of all light to the world? He did. And all of us who refuse and reject him, we walk in darkness. Those who follow Jesus doesn't have to walk in darkness. Those who follow Jesus will have the light of life. Jesus is also stating that light is connected with life, though. Think about that. Scientists will tell you that it's basically impossible for anything living to exist without a certain amount of light. If the sun were to quit shining, what we know as life would eventually die out and cease to exist. Without Christ, we'll die and cease to have what we need to survive. That's exactly right. We will then be cast into outer darkness where we will die forever in eternity. In John 9 and 5, Jesus said as long as he's in the world, he is the light of the world. And that can be taken in two ways. Number one, as long as he's on the earth, he was the light of the world. Now that he's back in heaven with the Father, the church is the light of the world, according to Matthew 5 and 14. The other way to interpret this is that since Jesus is fully God and one of the Godhead, one of the members of the Godhead, he is also omnipresent. This means that he is always constantly and continuously present in heaven and on the earth. This view would state that Christ is still in the world. Therefore, he is still the true light of the world, and the church is just the reflection of his light. I like that analogy. It reminds me of how the sun and the moon work together. You know, scientists say that the moon has no light of its own, but it only reflects the light of the sun. That's what we as Christians are to be doing with Christ. He is the light, and we are to reflect that light into all the world. Yes, we are. In John 12 and 46, Jesus says that he is the light in the world. And then in John 1 and 9, John says that the word is the true light. He also said that the word lights or gives light to every man who comes into the world. You know, I've wondered about that before. What does that mean? Is this saying that every man that comes into the world is saved or that they will be saved? 
No, no, we know that can't be saying this for the Bible doesn't teach universalism, which means that everybody will be saved. What it means is that since the light gives life, every man that comes into the world is given a form of life by the light. Since the light is the source of life, all men who are born are given life by and through the light. So somewhere along through life, that light will be revealed unto them again, and they must either receive him or reject him. Before we leave this verse and go into verse 5, I want to mention one last thing. Yeah, well, you sure don't want to get in a hurry now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the Greek word for light in this passage is photos. Okay, photos can stand for any form of light in opposition to darkness. It can be a torch, a bonfire, a flicker of a match. It, it doesn't matter. It's any form of light. To me, the interesting part here is how we got the word photo from this Greek word photos, which originally meant light. We think of somebody taking a picture. You don't really think of light. You think of a snapshot. We think of the same image being replicated again. Our process of getting photographs, though, originally involved what was called a dark room. The photo that was captured was hidden in the darkness until it was brought into the light. This is similar to how Jesus works in our lives. I like that because it tells us that Jesus brings us out of the darkness of sin and gives unto us light, which has life within it. Yes, it does. Let's go into verse 5, and I think we can cover this before we close today. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. John says that the light shines in darkness. As a matter of fact, light shines its brightest in the midst of darkness. Even a small light is bright when its surroundings are the darkest. When I was in my teens, I read of some research some scientists were doing in regards to how far one could see a small light. On a cloudy night in a flat desert, the normal person with 20-20 eyesight could see a match flicker from nearly 40 miles away. Now, mind you, all of the conditions had to be perfect for that to be pulled off, but that's still something else. Yeah, but either way, that's pretty amazing, all things considered. Yes, the light shines in darkness, yes, which sir. means that the life also shines in darkness. Our lives should shine as lights in the darkness. Mm -hmm. You know why? The Word shines in darkness. Jesus shines in darkness. The darkness didn't comprehend the light, so the darkness won't be able to comprehend the life either. The darkness didn't comprehend the word. Ultimately, the darkness didn't comprehend Jesus Christ, and that's what the problem is. In John 3 and 19, I know we're a long ways from it in doing these studies, but it's stated there that this is the condemnation, that light came into the world, but men love darkness rather than the light. Well, John told us the reason man loves darkness more than light is because their deeds are evil. That's right. And it's because people are evil that they reject the light. They reject the life. They reject the word. And ultimately, they reject Jesus Christ. Men love darkness more than they love light. So this tells us something else. They also love death more than they love life. The word we see as comprehend here is a little different in meaning from the way that we would use it. Oh, yeah. How different is it? Well, it's fairly different because when we think of someone who can't comprehend something, it means that they can't grasp it mentally or they fail to understand it. Comprehend here is the Greek word katalambanome. Katalambanome has six different modes of interpretation. It has quite an amazing range, starting with not being able to acquire or obtain something. It means you just can't get a hold of it. It means to not be able to attack something. It means to not be able to seize something or lay hold on it. It also speaks of the lack of ability to learn something or grasp something like we would say it today. But then we have the meaning of which it's used with right here in this verse. And it means not to have the ability to overcome something, to overpower something, to apprehend something, or to gain control over. 
transliterating it straight from the Greek, it would be more like this. The light appeared in the darkness, and the darkness apprehended it not. Well, wouldn't that imply that the darkness actually tried to lay hold on the light? It does carry that sense. So then we've got to come to a conclusion. It's got to be understood in one of two ways. Number one, the darkness wanted the light but could not obtain it. Now, that would be true in the sense that if darkness could grab hold of light. But think about it. If darkness grabbed hold of light, darkness would no more be darkness because now it would have light in it. So in this respect, it's not even possible for darkness to truly grab hold of the light. The second way to understand this is darkness tried to lay hold of the light in order to conquer it and to destroy it. Well, that's probably the best way to understand it. Yeah, because we know the rulers of darkness tried to lay hold on Jesus Christ, who is the light. We also know that they could not comprehend him. They could not apprehend him, nor could they overcome him. The idea behind it all is that this darkness sought to extinguish the light, but they could not do it. You know why, don't you? The light is greater than the darkness. That's right. Amen. Jesus tells them that the light is among them for a little while, so they need to walk in the light while they have it or while they have him. (laughs) If they don't walk in the light while they have the light present, him, Jesus Christ, darkness will come upon them or it will lay hold of them in order to overcome them. The end result of all of this is that they would not know where they were going when they walked in darkness. That's why they needed the light. In other words, they wouldn't comprehend where they're going nor what they were doing. That's true. That same word right here, catalambanome, it's used in 1 Corinthians 9 and 24 as obtain. It says, know ye, they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that ye may obtain. Now think about that. They comprehended it not. They obtained it not. It's trying to receive a prize in 1 Corinthians 9 and 24. And Romans 9 and 30, it's used as attain. What shall we say then that the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness? This is that same word, comprehend. You can't grasp it. You can't get a hold of it. Going into Mark 9 and 18, it's used to describe the devil taking possession of a man. And wheresoever he taketh them, he teareth them, and he foameth and gnasheth with his teeth and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. He taketh him. He taketh possession of that man. That means that he was trying to comprehend this man. He's trying to apprehend this man. It's used as of the day of the Lord, overtaking someone by surprise in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 4. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. The word overtake is the same word comprehend here in John 1 and 5. The darkness tried to overtake the light. The darkness tried to take possession of the light. The darkness tried to attain to the light. The darkness tried to obtain the light. The darkness tried to defeat the light, but darkness cannot conquer the light. We know that John is basing his gospel off of the Genesis account by the way he starts his book, and especially by the way verse 1 reads. All of this is in keeping with Genesis 1 and 1 through 5 right here. If you go back and read the first five verses of Genesis 1 and look at the first five verses of John 1, you begin to see such a parallel. There was darkness on the face of the deep, but God called light out from the darkness and the darkness could not lay hold upon it. The darkness could not stop the light from coming forth. You know what? The light was also prophesied by Isaiah in a couple of places, such as Isaiah 9 and 2. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light, and they that dwell in the shadow of death upon them hath the light shined. Isaiah 60 and 1 and 2. 
Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. I think we'd all agree that darkness seems to be prevailing in this world. But we should also agree that the light will defeat the darkness of this world. That's exactly right. And Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 2 and 8 that Jesus is going to destroy the enemy with the brightness of his coming. The light will always destroy and defeat the darkness. John describes Christ by saying the life was the light. He also says the light shineth in darkness. Christ as the light of this world did not shine on the darkness of this world, but he shone in the darkness. He came into this darkness to shine within it, not just on it. The sun shines on the earth, but it doesn't shine in the earth. Jesus shone that light, not just on their dark deeds, but in the darkness. I like the way you made that distinction. Jesus' own words were, I am come a light into the world, John 12 and 46. The purpose of the light is to overcome the darkness. The center of this darkness is the human heart. That's where the darkness we're talking about. Not that the the people in the world have the lights off and it got night. It's not talking about anything like that. It's talking about the darkness of human corruption, the darkness found within the heart of every man, woman, boy, and girl. The God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, guess what? He shined within our heart, in our hearts, not on our hearts, in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, according to 2 Corinthians 4 and 6. The darkness comprehended it not. That's right. The darkness of willful unbelief remained unconscious of the dawning of the new day that God gave this nation and gave all the peoples of this earth, for they knew not the time of their visitation. That's what Jesus said in Luke 19. The darkness overcame it not. That's right, and no matter how dense the darkness is, it cannot overcome the purity or purpose of the light. The light shines, but men condemn them on selves by loving darkness rather than light. Jesus said that in John 3 and 19. I'm so glad we are the children of the light, aren't you? I certainly am. Thank God for the light. Thank That's God right. for Jesus. Amen. All right, there's a great lesson today. Got a question in here. You ready for it? Yeah, tell me what we got today. This is a serious question, I think. Where do you see our nation in the last days? Yeah, that's a good question. It's a difficult question in one sense. And if I remember the email correctly, it had another question in with it. Is it possible that America will be destroyed by a nation like China or Russia and not have a place in the end times at all? Is that possible? Okay, so let me speak to the main question at hand. Where do you see our nation in the last days? Fittingly, I see it right where we were just talking about, in darkness. Our nation is in darkness. Our nation is guilty of Psalm 9 and 17 right now. All nations that forget their God shall be turned into hell. At best, the people of America could turn their hearts around and maybe be given a few more years, spared a little bit of time. Maybe there's some still yet within this nation that's trying to do a decent thing and live a moral life. They still need Jesus, though. You can live a moral life but you got to have light to do so. Amen. So how long can you be moral in an immoral world? You can't. You can't walk in the light if you don't have the light. We're living in a nation who's in the midst of turning away from God. There's been many episodes that we've covered lately, and I wonder if it may be one of the reasons why it spurred this question. We've been talking a lot about America and the sins that are prevalent here in America. Mm-hmm. So where do we see our nation in the last days? I see our nation headed to judgment in a hurry. 
I understand this is probably more of an end time question of what's going to happen to America. And by the second question, is it possible we're going to be destroyed by a nation like China or Russia and not have any place at all in the end times? I hate to sound like a naysayer or a doomsday prophet, but I think that's a very possible thing. I don't say that I lean to that the most. I think it's likely, but I don't know that it's probable. I think there's a good possibility that we will be wiped out or pushed out of the picture somehow. I personally lean more to the fact right now that we're going to come under the cloak of another nation. We owe China and India so much right now and many other nations. If they wanted to claim their all of their debt right now and make us pay, we would almost have to become servant to a nation. So I see us coming under the cloak of another nation. And basically, America will just cease to be. It may not have to be destroyed by a bomb. It may not have to be wiped off the map with a terrible war and multiple casualties in that sense. I don't know. It may happen that way. But I see us coming under service unto another country. And then we lose our distinction as being Americans. And that's why we have absolutely no scriptures that mention America specifically in the end times. Great answer, Brother Donnie. Friends, remember, if you have a Bible question or a question regarding how news and current events or things going on in our culture are connected to Scripture, drop us an email at dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. That's dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. We hope you've enjoyed the episode today, sharing God's Word. But until next time, may God bless you all. Be sure and come back next Friday, June the 23rd, for special edition number 87, What Does Biblical Leadership Look Like, Part 2. Will it change my heart all around? Put my feet back on the ground, got along. Now for heaven I want to go. I want to go. I want to go. To that land where the milk and honey flow. Oh, I've heard of such a place. I can't go there by God's grace. Never seen it, but I know I want to go.